Occupy a Job on Wall Street is an autobiographical novel about New York City in the aughts, centering around a protagonist who is mentored by three sociopaths. Episode 58, Gasoline Stripper. There's a scene in our third episode, the non-me-too moment, when my colleague Laura humiliates a buy-side trader so thoroughly that no one ever saw him again. I recently heard a little more about that incident, and what I found was interesting enough to follow up on. If you haven't listened to episode 3, it's an attempt to explain why there have been so few Me Too complaints on Wall Street, despite it being a hotbed of sexist and misogynist activity. There are a few reasons why this is the case, but in part it's because the women back then were just too tough to intimidate. Let's pick up within that episode, and then I'll outline my best understanding of what happened to the buy-side trader in question. So my sales trader Laura and I are at a local midtown bar called Snafu. It was situation normal all fucked up. Three traders from a big New Jersey mutual fund walk in, and within 30 seconds, one of them drops a C-bomb right in front of Laura. Laura's almost six foot and hot, but she's all Philadelphia. Hard as nails, and people misjudge her all the time. She lines up on the guy and says, What did you just say? The trader looks her in the eye and replies, Cunt. Laura headbutts him right above the nose and drops him to a knee. Then, for good measure, she headbutts the junior trader standing next to him, who hadn't even said anything since entering the bar. I walk into the bathroom five minutes later, and the first trader is looking at himself in the mirror and holding his forehead together with wads of bloody tissues, and the guy goes, Ugh, I just got headbutted by a beer-drinking Irish broad from Philly. I think I'm in love. So 15 minutes on, it seems like we're all friends again, standing around at the bar in Snafu. But Laura's not done with this guy. It's almost midnight, so she suggests we go to a strip club. Everyone's terrified of her now, of course, but we're stoked with this seeming change into a more conventional broker attitude. We walk in there, start throwing money around, and in no time everyone, including Laura, has two strippers sitting on their laps. Laura looks over at the guy she dropped earlier in the night and says, So, you having a good night, Sparky? He nods his head, suddenly wary at her tone. But it's too late, and she leans over, grabs him by the collar, puts a finger inside his shirt, and rips it downwards, taking every button off it and sending them flying all over the strip club. It takes a minute to dawn on him, but then he realizes he has to go home to his crazy wife with a bleeding forehead, covered in glitter, with no shirt, and smelling like a stripper. And that's where we left him. So it turns out this guy was named Scotty and was actually from Scotland. Now, it's worth noting, there are no Scottish people on Wall Street. I've been in the industry for almost 20 years now, and this is the only one I've ever met. I didn't even know he was Scottish at the time. He was the kind of guy who would say things like, Martinez are like bris. Yin is not enough, and three is too many. And it seems like he was quite the character. He once got fired from the NYSC for writing on a bathroom wall and was already in trouble at work for inviting random people to his company Christmas party and then knocking himself out with a whiskey bottle. Definitely the sort of person who didn't know if he'd taken something an inch or a mile too far. Despite this, he had a good job and worked at a top-tier firm. Unfortunately for him, he was just about to jump off the gravy train and into a bucket of shit. Anyway, so our boy Scotty stumbles out of Flashdancers, 18 beers in, still bleeding from his forehead, his shirt ripped open, with glitter on his face and smelling like stale vanilla. He looks down and vaguely recognizes the poor state of himself, so he decides to head down to the Baycrest Loft. 
At the time, the Baycrest Loft was a sort of judgment-free zone for Wall Street traders, but we'll get into that in a future episode. The loft was all the way south of Houston on the Lower East Side, so he starts wandering down that way until he sees a familiar car parked on the side of the road. Rummaging around in his pockets, he finds his keys, and sure enough, there's a reassuring click of an alarm, and in no time, he finds himself behind the wheel of his car, congratulating himself on his maturity in deciding to go home. Now, Scotty was a little more blasted than normal, but it's worth noting that drunk driving wasn't taken as seriously back then. He'd already been arrested once for it and just told HR he was making strawberry daiquiris in his car. He makes it through the tunnel and is weaving his way towards his home in Mawa, when he decides to stop at a gas station for some cigarettes and water to sober up before he faces his wife. Now, he's Scottish after all, so normally wouldn't worry too much about what his wife thought after a big night out. But she's recently been suffering from postnatal psychosis and has started stomping around the house like Tom Brady after a big loss. In the bright light of the gas station, he realizes he's not in any state to face her. He's already the hypothetical villain of her imagination. In particular, his wife's olfactory senses have been very sensitive, and you wouldn't have to be a bloodhound to know he smells like a herd of strippers. Scotty thinks to himself, what is the only thing stronger than stripper scent? And as he walks back to the car, he has a eureka moment. Of course, gasoline. He starts off small enough by taking the cap off the gas tank and smearing it on his neck, not noticing it's basically just grease and he's leaving huge dark marks all over his skin. Eventually, he takes the nozzle and sprays a little on his hands. But in no time, he's like an out-of-control horse that sees a cliff ahead but can't stop running, spraying petrol down his arms and even a little on his crotch to offset some of the particularly intimate lap dances. Twenty minutes later, he pulls up to his house, happy to have gotten there in one piece given he's so hammered he'd been seeing things in two dimensions for the past hour. He starts to mentally prepare to head inside. But his wife hates the smell of tobacco, and Scotty is the sort of guy who would be putting out his last cigarette while he was being rolled into a funeral parlor. So he lights up a final canter stick, and of course, his suit immediately catches on fire. Still smoldering, Scotty falls out of the car and stumbles towards the house. Getting up to the stairs to the front door is like trying to climb Everest in flip-flops, but he eventually makes it up to hit the doorbell with his chin. Death sounds relaxing to him right now. Once inside, he inches his way to the bedroom, opens the door slowly, and starts walking backwards into the room while undoing his suit, ready to make a quick escape if his wife wakes up. Of course, she is awake and ready to go ballistic at him. She turns on the light and he swings his suit back on, saying, Hello, love. Sorry to be away now, I gotta go trade Europe now. Then he dashes forward to get the hell out of there, smashes his head on the side of the doorway, and knocks himself unconscious. The next day, Scotty and his wife had a sit-down and a nice talk, and she decided for them that working on Wall Street wasn't for him, and that's why there are no Scots on Wall Street anymore. Episode 59 of Occupy a Job on Wall Street will be haste back. And hey, if you think this podcast is canny, tell your chums to listen. And if you didn't like it, well up yours, you cow.